0: Our manufacturers they're they're producing ventilators companies that never produce uh masks are now producing masks you can go to you can go to gucci.com and get yourself a, a face mask now. <laughs> welcome to deep thoughts science and social justice Episode 2. I'm your host, Pardeep, and this is an interview podcast where we take a deep dive into the struggles, triumphs, and personal stories of minorities in the sciences, arts, and public service. The goal of these interviews is to have candid, first-person conversations about the role of race, gender, and socioeconomic status in politics, the sciences, and beyond. As you listen to these undocumented experiences I hope we demonstrate the value of diversity and recognize the inequities that exist in the daily lives of minorities in this country. And this is a special episode, because we'll be talking to Dr. Michael Wells. Michael Wells received his PhD from Duke University, is a first-generation Salvadorian American scientist, and is the creator and co-director of the COVID-19 National Scientist Volunteer Database, which now consists of over 9,000 researchers willing to donate their time and advanced skills to fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Wells launched this initiative with the hopes of harnessing and deploying the passion and talents of scientists throughout the United States. Outside of NSVD, Dr. Wells is a K99-R00 postdoctoral fellow in the Stanley Center for Psychiatric Research at the Broad Institute and the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology at Harvard University. His research focuses on the impact of genetic variation on human brain development and susceptibility to viral infection. Dr. Wells is also the co-founder of the Wishard Group, a nonprofit that aims to improve the mental health well-being of artists and musicians. Michael, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for for inviting me. I'm really happy to be a part of this.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, man. So for for the people who are listening who don't know, this is actually the first time me and Michael are are talking. Uh, we spent the past few months working in parallel between our respective groups. Um, And so my group, uh, the New York biomedical technician Rapid response team, we founded a a pop-up laboratory in Brooklyn that was doing free COVID testing. Uh, And we found this lab during the height of the pandemic and got it running in less than six weeks uh, using free supplies, donated supplies and volunteer uh, work while volunteer labor to keep the lab running. Uh, Overall, you know, we've saved at least $45,000 in lab supplies and lab space uh, and uh, had support from uh, data scientists, life scientists from virtually every life sciences discipline uh, who got together and wanted to use their their scientific skills to do testing in one of the hardest hit communities in America. And Michael, in parallel, started the uh, National Science Volunteer Database, which, uh, which ended up getting uh, at least nine thousand uh, 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 signatories of scientists who and researchers who wanted to use their skills to help during this pandemic, and you know, Michael, like I, I gotta say, um, the help that we got from you guys was was really invaluable, especially when it came to getting volunteers to help us out. So when we first got started, it was really just four people. Um, me, Nadia, Helen, and Alex, who were like, yo, we got to do something about this. Uh, You know, we could do CPR, but not PCR. And the challenge is the challenge is not the actual assay. You know, anyone, any one of us can do a QPCR. The challenge is the real estate, the lab space and the permissions and, and, and sort of uh, 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 certifications we have to get in order to do this testing, in order to get samples, et cetera. And once we were past that point, we were ready to take it to another level, Uh, and we were learning a lot about Michael's efforts as well. You know, he helped us out with, you know, getting us resources and volunteers and attention, all of which is really important to help keep the lab going. So, you know, Michael, why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about like, what prompted you to start this database, uh, or maybe take us like one or two steps before you started database when maybe back to February, when this virus was, was cropping up, you know, what, what was your sort of instinct, uh, as a scientist, uh, to get this database going, and, and, and what prompted you to, to start it?
1: Uh, you know, I guess I was fortunate enough to have a, a boss who was taking this very seriously from day one. Um, he sat our lab down in January and told us all, you need to prepare for a shutdown. You need to assume that this virus is going to come to this country and that it's going to uh, prevent you from being able to do your job uh, for a significant period of time. And so I think, you know, his, his uh, warning sign, or his, the alarm bells that he was ringing uh, was the first time that I realized, like, oh, I should probably pay attention to this. Uh, and this is not, you know, completely out of left field. For the past four or five years, I've been studying the Zika virus. And we all are very aware of, um, you know, how much attention uh, that outbreak received in 2015 and 2016, which is uh, what uh, prompted uh, my foray into infectious disease, even though I'm a trained neurobiologist. Um, And so, you know, my boss has always been interested in infectious disease. uh, And so uh, he was following it closely. And that kind of just, you know, uh, bled over into into work life. And so when it was very apparent that COVID-19 was uh, going to be a problem here in this country, um, I thought for maybe four seconds that, hey, maybe I should do research on COVID-19 just like I did research on Zika. Uh, but I realized that that was, no, that was a no-go. <laughs> There's no way we're going to be allowed to bring in, you know, SARS-CoV-2 or SARS-CoV-2 into uh, uh, into the lab, uh, which is we just don't have the clearance for something like that. So what happened was uh, our lab didn't get shut down. Our boss was correct, uh, even though no one believed him at the time. My boss, by the way, is, uh, his name is Kevin Egan. He's at Harvard. Um, and so the lab shut down, I believe it was March 18th or something like that. And on the walk home, um, I thought, hey, maybe I should start organizing people, scientists, who could, you know, play a role in helping to fight this, fight this thing? And, and ideally, you know, the, the the process behind it was there are thousands of people in this country who know how to do PCR and qPCR. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, hopefully we can get them into labs. And maybe they don't do qPCR, but they can, uh, you know, they're skilled labor who could, you know, participate in collecting samples or uh, the whole pipeline from sample collection to actually getting to the uh, testing facility. Um, and so on the walk home, I, I thought like, oh, maybe I should go ahead and, and set something like this up. Uh, and there'd been a, a couple of people who had posted very similar um, intake forms. Uh, the one I had seen prior to uh, launching my own came from uh, somewhere in uh, the Bay Area, I forget the exact institution. Um, but everybody was kind of doing it at the local level. It was, you know, the one I'd seen was one in San Diego, one in San Francisco, but they're only looking for scientists in that area. And so I thought, well, you know, places like San Francisco and Boston, they're not going to really need that many scientists uh, to do these things. Because uh, we already have all of this capacity. We have all these uh, skill, we have a skilled labor force in this area. And so I was really thinking about places like Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from, uh, and the suburbs, uh, which is actually where I grew up, and all those areas in the middle of the country that don't necessarily have, you know, three of the world's top um, universities, you know, within two train stops of each other, like we do ha- have here in, in Cambridge. Uh, and even though, you know, those places have like Ohio State and a bunch of great universities, I was really looking to build something that could be deployed on a national scale um, so that we didn't have a situation where there were, you know, 50 different organizations popping up, um, each trying to build databases of volunteers and just duplicating efforts. So, my real plan behind this was let's, let's get one centralized location for all these volunteers. Um, and then after I launched it, I found out about what was going on with your group in New York, and then another group in Madison, Wisconsin. So all these groups started popping up, and uh, I started learning about ones that had been in existence for a week or two prior to me launching this database. And so we all just started working together, uh, and it was it was really nice, just feeling like we were you know we we're being part of the solution. Um, and it, but you know that that feeling didn't last for very long, I should say. <laughs> um, Because of things that you had mentioned uh, with respect to regulatory issues and the uh, many, many laws that are preventing very skilled scientists from getting into testing sites um, and uh, being um, able to use their. Yeah, exactly. Able to be helpful. It's been very difficult to deploy volunteers that match their skill sets because of all the different. Uh, regulation, specifically a law called CLIA, that is really uh, kind of throwing things for uh, a loop. And and I remember distinctly a group, an uh, 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 individual, found me on LinkedIn. He's like, "Hey, I have thirty years of CLIA experience. I'd love to talk <laughs> to you guys." And so uh, I spoke to him, and then I sent him to your group. And I think he answered a lot of questions for you and Nadia. And then the guy disappeared because I think he realized <laughs> that. He may have made a mistake by making himself available to our group because he had so many requests from organizations associated with ours uh, to answer questions um, that uh, I think he realized that he probably should focus on his day job uh, because this could take up a majority of his time if if he continues along this path.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know we're definitely gonna we're definitely gonna get into 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 some of that we talk about the regulatory issues that held us back, CLIA, you know, uh, uh, lab space, finding the right, you know, how is any lab going to just let a bunch of strangers walk up in there and do testing, right? There has to be yeah. a lot of trust there. We got very lucky. We got very, very lucky. So so how we found our lab was, uh, it was just a stroke of luck. So, you know, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, Now I was born and raised in Brooklyn, and I understand the New York City biotech ecosystem. You know, from academic institutions, large uh, pharma companies, biotech, and everything in between. I know where they are and, you know, what they're doing. But the new question that emerged when this pandemic came through is, what are they doing now when this pandemic is hitting us? And where can we be the most useful? Because, you know, Nadia's tweet went viral. We had this this large volunteer base of people who were enthusiastic to help. Uh, Whether or not they were useful, you know, that's like another story. But we, uh, so the question became, where can we insert ourselves? And, you know, for me, it, the, 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 luckiest place to be is probably in biotech or finding that, finding that PI who's like in transition of like academia, but trying to enter private sector. This is somebody who has a lot of time, a lot of money, but not a lot of help. And we were mm-hmm. lucky because, um, you know, I reached out to the, to the SUNY downstate incubators in Brooklyn. And like I'm just sending out desperate emails to academic institutions and, and and these incubators. And just out of the blue, you know, one email one like frustrated email I had sent out, we we ended up getting a response from our glorious mentor, Prem. She's the um she was the CEO of this biotech company there. And she's like, Yeah, you know, I have this empty room. What do you want to do? And from there, you know, we just took it. Uh, we, we, we went up, we signed some waivers that allowed us to be in that space, uh, without suing her if we got sick, which is fair uh-huh. <laughs> and, and we got to work. So, you know, Prem, Prem had a lot of, Prem had a lot of money in investors. Uh, we tried to get some money on our end, but I think what was valuable is that we had volunteers and expertise, uh, uh, some volunteers we got from you guys, grant writers and, and data scientists, which are really helpful. But, um, Bill's really just a stroke of luck to lab space in the middle of a pandemic is like gold. Yeah. Uh, And from there we, I, I, I definitely share that sentiment that, you know, you have all this ambition and you want to, you want to help. But then once you come again, once you come up against these regulatory barriers, all of a sudden, like that energy, you know, goes away. You got to find a way to, 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 uh, to help without necessarily having the lab space, but Prem had everything except, except clear certification, which we ended up getting later. Uh Uh, but uh but she had everything and, and that was really the galvanizing moment for us.
1: Yeah, I mean I just I feel like it shouldn't have been this difficult. I mean that's what I've been feeling this entire time. I mean, maybe it's just me being naive, but um or no. maybe it's me or maybe it's me just growing up in a country that used to be functional. I mean that's kinda of how I've been viewing this thing, how we used to have yeah. a functional government, or at least a government that pretended to be functional. We just don't have that right now. And I I You know, at first I was kind of holding, you know, biting my tongue on stuff like this, but now I really just don't care anymore.
0: Yeah, yo, give it to me, man, because you're right. Yeah,
1: I mean, we were, we were from the beginning, we were trying to be very aware of the fact that we don't want to criticize any government entity uh, because we may need to work with them in the future. But that ended up just not being the case because they never actually um, took our help. Mm-hmm. A vast majority of our of our volunteers have been deployed for non-government positions or non-government volunteer opportunities. Things that had nothing to do with something that a, a health department set up. And I, I, I'm trying to really put myself in their shoes. And when I do, what I see is a dysfunctional federal response.
0: Well, where, where, this... where were some of the volunteers deployed? Uh, yeah, give a few examples, because uh, you, know, you had a lot of people in your database. Where, where were some of them going?
1: So besides uh, your, uh, your group, the people we sent your way, we had a lot of people, uh, a lot of academics reach out to us uh, with different projects. So a lot of these were remote. And that was really helpful when we realized that, hey, we could really help um, groups that are, say, performing uh, peer review of Papers that have been published, because thousands and thousands of COVID-19 papers have been published in the past six months, and it's really difficult. For example, for a clinician to go through all that data and figure out what exactly they should be doing, um, you know, on the ground to help their patients. And so, one group, for example, of uh, I think they're based in Virginia. We sent a lot of volunteers their way, and their whole their whole deal was using artificial intelligence and machine learning to figure out. Um, which papers out there or to, to extract data from these, from these uh, published papers and then have an actual human uh, write up like a brief synopsis uh, for mm. a general audience. Mm. And so it's really taking all of this data and uh, condensing it into one paragraph that could be easily digested. Uh, we also deployed volunteers uh, and, you know, I don't know if they're still volunteers because I think a lot of them actually end up getting paid uh, for a company called Curative. Mm -hmm. The curative is running most of the tests in LA and I think they expanded to Delaware and Washington, DC. Uh, and so the way it worked there is we, we told the people when they signed up, we were never going to share their information with the company, um, without their consent. And so essentially what we did when we started getting companies reaching out and saying, Hey, we just need like, you know, someone to take patients names down. Like right now, the biggest limiting factor for us is just getting people on board. Like we can pay them later, but right now we just need bodies, uh, you know, we need people who know what they're doing. Uh, and so this was Curative. I actually reached out, I think, as early as March. So they are one of the first groups we actually uh, worked with. Uh, but essentially, they uh, or what we did with them is we we created an intake form that we then emailed to people in the Los Angeles area. And we told them, hey, we're not going to give the, your information over to this company. Uh, but if you felt this form, it will go straight to that company, and they can bring you on board. And mm-hmm. what was really surprising about that is we sent that to about... Uh, I'm sorry, of the, we sent it to about 250 people in LA. And um, we had about 55 people from the database sign up, but we also had about 60 people from the database, from, who are not in the database sign up, which meant that people were taking the intake form and sharing it uh, with other people in their network. Uh, and so we realized that that's a really good way of, um, of bringing on volunteers for very specific tasks, rather than just using the database Uh, as a resource uh, for uh, these um, volunteer coordinators to, you know, look at the database and and figure out who they want to bring on. We realized, like, the database only has 14 questions in it. So you're not going to get a lot of information from the database. So what we started doing is creating individualized intake forms for each volunteer opportunity and then sharing it with our network because we realized that that was a really easy way for it to spread to other people uh, in that, you know, in those communities. Uh, and that yeah. really helped bring on a lot more people for those opportunities. So that if you're a volunteer coordinator, you got to pick and choose what questions were asked. And you got to pick and choose which volunteers you followed up with based on you know their answers. Um, so that was just a few examples. I mean, We've we worked with a lot of different um, uh, you know, uh, handful of companies, but mostly it's been other academics. Uh, yeah, and a handful, yeah. of, a handful of county health officials, There's just a handful of those.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know we're we're definitely going to get into like the the regulatory issues and a dysfunctional government. I agree with you. We had a lot of problems with that as well. But on the more remote side of things, we had a lot of people who weren't in the lab as well. You know, what we realized early on is that we wanted to keep the people in the lab like tight, small group people because we were focused on like protocol optimization early on and we didn't want too many like hands in the pot uh up in the lab doing that, especially handling potentially uh you know, uh, samples that may potentially contain the virus. So, you know, we had groups out there trying to get supplies for the lab. We had people out there doing communications. We had people out there doing volunteer management and we broke, and we, that was sort of the organizational structure and most, and pretty much all that, everything except for the people being in the lab, uh, was, was remote as well. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's, uh, that's the sort of gift of, you know, moving online. Um, and, you know, so let's, let's sort of uh, talk about talk a little bit about the the government dysfunction and mm-hmm. you know I, know I know i know we can go on and on on and on about that but you know th- did you like distribute your your database to lawmakers or 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 uh, or have any success with 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 government uh, outreach because on on our end you know we we wanted to we wanted to do testing uh, uh, or you utilize the the pull of our of our representatives to get people to to, to get samples. You know, we wanted to go to assemblymen's offices, congressional offices. We weren't getting any help whatsoever. And in fact, like there there were also uh, some barriers. You know, the city or state had paid for nasal swabs. They wanted us to do nasal swab tests because they paid for them, but we wanted to do saliva saliva based testing, and they were discouraging on that front. But um, you know, did you dis- distribute your your database to lawmakers, and do you think the lawmakers? You know, uh, were were uh, were uh, at, were accepted uh, this list and wanted to work with you and utilize it, or or was it more of the opposite and it was a more dysfunctional uh, and kind of useless, really?
1: Yeah. So we had a big push for government outreach. We had two or three people in our organization where that was their sole focus. Uh, we collected, I think, twenty four hundred email addresses. Uh, for yeah, government officials at every single level of government uh, who had anything to do with health departments. Uh, you know, we scraped internet sites uh, for these contacts, and we would send these you know mass emails where we would notify them of the database. We would um, you know make it very easy for them to request access to the database. We made it so that if you had a .gov account, essentially, uh, we fast tracked your approval for the database, um, and. At first, we had, I would say, 10 or so state health officials request access to the database. Um, We don't really know what they did with it, if they actually brought on volunteers, and the reason for that is because uh, we we really tried to reconnect with those individuals and never really heard back from them, which is okay. Like They have bigger things to worry about than notifying us that they actually brought on volunteers. Uh, But it was still been nice to know that they were using it. Uh, I think the one that disappointed me the most, though, uh, was FEMA. Mm. So we gave access. We were really excited when FEMA requested access. Um, I I don't have direct evidence of this, but based on the questions the person was asking, and uh, the uh, types of follow up questions and the types of the things he was seeking from the database, um, I'm pretty sure it had something to do with Jared Kushner's attempt to acquire a lot of PPE that was then being sold or something like that. I remember distinctly an article that came out about a month after my interaction with this guy from FEMA, um, in which it turned out that the federal government was stockpiling, was, was getting PPE, stockpiling it, and then just not distributing it um, equally. Uh, it was, a, it was a, it, yeah, it was a big controversy for maybe four minutes because then you know we had to move on to another controversy from this information. <laughs> um, so uh, that that was very disheartening because it was very clear after reading that article that he had no interest in deploying volunteers. Uh, it had more to do with him just trying to acquire PPE for the sake of pleasing um, you know people in the White House. It didn't really seem like he had much interest in and working with us. Uh, And so, I mean, I think the most naive thing that I kind of thought was that we would create this database and uh, the the federal government would find out about it through our extensive government outreach. And they'd be like, oh, thank you so much. We're so glad you created this. We'll take it from here. (laughs) That's kind of what we thought would eventually happen. Um, And not necessarily, you know, at the White House level, but more maybe the CDC, maybe someone from NIH, you know, FEMA, something, uh, you know, health and human services, but it just never happened. And so uh, as a result of that, you know, unfortunately we did not get to deploy as many volunteers as we hoped to for these types of, uh, you know, direct, uh, you know, testing of samples or or being involved in that in some way. So we just had to find other ways to, to involve people because we know, That when everybody, we have about 9,500 people in the database. And I guarantee you that every single person that signed up, one of the thoughts that went through their minds was, uh, I'll be telling my grandkids about this someday. Like, what Mm -hmm. did I do during the pandemic? And so we wanted every single one of those scientists to have an opportunity to contribute in some way, you know, through our database. And hopefully they found ways of contributing, you know, without us. Um, and we definitely deployed, you know, a, tons of people who were actually able to help. Uh, but our goal was to deploy every single one of them. And that that just didn't happen. And we're still working on it. You know, we're, we still exist. We're still trying to find ways for people to get involved. But the ways that we thought people were going to participate just do not seem like they're going to be a possibility uh, under the current rules and regulations and under the current, you know, Federal response plan, which is is pretty much non-existent, uh, and so you know we we found other ways. We we built consultancy teams where some health officials reached out, some businesses reached out, or like, "Hey, we we don't know how to reopen our business safely. Um, mm. Can can we can we talk to some scientists?" So we built a team of experts for them, and so one of them was the makeup. There's a makeup industry uh, 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 group, and uh, they basically. Helped this organization uh, come up with plans for how to safely uh, apply makeup to people because nice. uh, the, that industry, you know, you cannot do that remotely. You cannot put makeup on somebody remotely. You have to have that close interaction with them. So we, so we help them uh, devise plans on how to do that. We're working with a team here in ba- in, uh, in Massachusetts that's working with local schools to help advise them on safe reopening plans. Um, basically we, you know, we had to be flexible. We had to find other ways to get people involved, uh, because the original plan just, just didn't really, didn't really come to fruition.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think like, uh, not only government organizations, but I'm going to gripe a little bit about academic institutions as well. Oh yes, absolutely. (laughs) Cause like early on, the first sort of group that we would go to are the universities in our area. And they did not want anybody in there, dude, no. because they're they're doing their own thing. They were doing their own either a they were like either a they weren't ready, b they had access to their own talent database, like recurrent students or postdocs or whoever, which is which is fine, that makes sense. Uh, or or three, uh, uh, c, uh, they they wanted to sort of do their own thing, set up their own tents and and work on it internally, or four, and this one I really didn't like was like. Scientists who who were already like doing virus stuff were like, no, we're going to invent our own technology and then patent it and then, you know, go with it from there. Mm -hmm. And what's really that really bothered me because like, you know, as a lifelong Brooklyn resident, like Brooklyn particularly was hit hard by this virus. I mean, it has the highest, you know, level, highest amount of, of, of black Americans in New York City and they're disproportionately impacted by the virus. My minorities in this borough. And I'm like, you know, my friends and family—they're never going to see a test because even though I can, I can do this test, I don't have access to one, and, and I can't do it. And I felt very—I felt useless, you know. Mm-hmm. So academic institutions were were tough as well. It sounds like you you were coming up against that too, uh, out in Cambridge.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's embarrassing to be honest with you. I mean, you know, part of what we're going to talk about today is you know socioeconomic status. Yeah. And I am so sick of these you know, universities that have multi-billion dollar endowments pretending like that they, they care. care about, exactly, like they care about the community near them. They don't. Uh, because if they did, uh, I would not have heard the, the word liability 10,000 times while talking to these different organizations. And I will say that I am insanely proud to be an employee of the Broad Institute because they have tested, they have run over a million tests uh, for uh, not just Boston, but Massachusetts, all of New England. Uh, They've been running tests because the Broad Institute realized from the start, hey, we, ha- we actually have a CLIA facility. Uh, it's mostly used for genomics, but we're going to convert this facility to run COVID-19 tests. And they did it. They did it very quickly, and they're still going at it. I just got tested at 5 p.m. today. In and out in five minutes. They test their employees at least twice a week. You can, you can, I'm sorry, you can get tested up to twice a week at the road. Um, and you know, they're, they're testing for all over the place, not just people you know who have broad IDs. Um, and I can't tell you how many PIs from around the country reached out to our organization, to our organization, saying, "Hey, uh, we." Want to uh, use our facility, our, our space to become a COVID test center? How do we do that? You know, we have qPCR machines, we have all the specialists. How do we do this? And we would try to help them, but it would always come to the point where a dean, like even though they had everything, they even have, a, they would even have CLIA licenses. A dean would say, like, "Oh no, you can't do that. It's yeah. too much of a liability. You know, what if someone yeah. gets sick?" And the, like, "Okay, guys, we are. This is a war. <laughs> like, we're fighting a virus that." It's killed 200,000 people and you're worried about liability. Like I get it to a certain degree, but if you're going to say stuff like that, if you're going to not allow, um, if you're not going to allow your your resources to be used to solve the problem, then stop telling people that you're part of this community because you're not. The community you're serving are the rich kids that can afford tuition to your school and that's it. Don't pretend like it's anything other than that.
0: Right. And universities, you know, they have their own reputations to worry about as well. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes yeah. like that, that, that takes over, you know, an individual PI or a large or a large university, they want to be the one, you know, to, to do it. They want to, they want to yeah. put their name on the map and, and, and come up with, and come up with the test. And the whole thing about liability, you know, this is true. I, I agree with you. And this is, this is a problem early on for us as well. We hate our, our lab leader, uh, she she ended up getting a team of lawyers to work pro bono to to work to work up a liability form for us and we immediately signed it uh, uh, thereafter. But even she had even though she she was she was a real champion for us. But even she had her own difficulties uh, getting a liability form up and running for us. And mm-hmm. you know, like it's a wartime posture. I mean. Even car manufacturers uh, during war, you know, you shift resources to where you wherever they have to be in order to 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 to, to fight the war. And and car manufacturers, they're they're producing ventilators, companies that never produce uh, 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 masks are now producing masks. You can go to you can go to Gucci.com and get yourself a, a, mm-hmm. a face mask now. <laughs> you know, and 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 it's and and it works. Uh, meanwhile, the the place where this innovation and and this technology uh, uh, exists, we can't really get access to it, and and this has been a this has been a real uh, limitation for for rapid responses in the middle yeah. of a pandemic. And the question is, you know, what are we going to do next time? Like, how how can we how can we uh, prevent the next pandemic when institutions are so difficult to work with? Um, and it's really unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just want to make it clear if I sound bitter about all this it's because it's because I am it, it, it's because I am so my mom just tested positive on Friday and she's been showing symptoms for two weeks now I mean she's right right now she's bedridden she can't really do much it looks like the symptoms are not as bad today as they were two days ago but what we know about this virus is people can have these flare-ups where they'll seem fine and then all of a sudden you know two days later they're in a in the ICU uh, and so I mean this thing has always, you know, been personal for me because, you know, I have family and I care about them. But now it's even more so uh, because where she lives in in Ohio, there's not widespread testing like there is here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I'm getting tested at both the Broad and Harvard now. Like I, I can get tested three times a week if I want to through my two institutions, but they don't have that necessarily for, you know, someone who doesn't work at a, at a hospital in Ohio. And so, you know, we're in situations now where you are seeing massive uh, disparities in access to testing across the country. You are seeing people who uh, still don't quite understand uh, the importance of wearing masks. And part of, you know, you, it's hard to blame some of these people when they're listening to their own leaders telling them that they don't need to necessarily do yeah. that. Or they say, walk around their neighborhood and don't see anybody else wearing a mask. Whereas if you do that here in Cambridge, you know, someone will throw a rock at you if you don't wear a mask in Cambridge. Yeah. And so there's, there's, we're seeing this, these huge differences because there, there is no national plan. And so I think for me, what's been most disappointing about this is I knew That this was a fractured country we're living in that is in desperate need of healing. But I didn't, I thought this was gonna bring us together. I really did. I remember 9 11 and how I felt after 9 11. Um, You know, I was a kid and I was terrified. But then within a few days, that fear went away because I was looking at how people were treating each other in my neighborhood, you know, uh, at the state level, the federal level. Everybody got together and said, we need to solve this problem. As a group, we're united now, and we are not seeing that right now in this country. And I think that's been the most disappointing aspect of this whole this whole pandemic.
0: Yeah, and this this disproportionate response it's 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 the individual states spending for themselves because the leaders in our government didn't want to take responsibility for 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 any action that happens and. Every state had to fend for their own supplies, fend for their own resources when we really needed a unified response, a hopeful message uh, uh, for, for Americans to to listen to when we didn't get it. And now it came down, you know, to the scientists defending basic science. I mean, you, you spend four or five years putting out a paper and then some random dude on Twitter is telling, Oh no, it's BS. Right now. And now, and now nobody believes it. So You know, it really blurs the lines. And this is where I think that, you know, scientists uh, and we can sort of transition to the next topic. Uh, This is where scientists should be adopting a secondary role. Uh, And, you know, many grad programs today, uh, master's, PhD programs, they don't they don't really cover this, at least, you know, maybe the more elite institutions do, but most don't, which is the top, which is the secondary role of, of scientists in emergency situations and science communication as well. You know, uh, a challenge for us is you know Brooklyn has over 600 spoken languages, right. and a difficulty f- thing for uh, well, I, I realized early on that a lot of people weren't getting tested just just based on my own connections in the neighborhood, and and uh, a lot of people weren't getting tested. Really, the only reason they weren't getting tested because they didn't speak English, or they didn't understand the forms they were filling out, or they didn't have any scientists or doctors or whoever to answer questions for them. And a real like a bonus in having this lab early on, uh, a goal goal of mine was, you know, really like a front lines approach to science communication We would have phlebotomists, doctors and scientists on the front line answering questions to dispel misinformation, Uh, 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 general info about COVID, why you should wear a mask while at the same time collecting saliva samples and showing science in action. Uh, citizen science, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you know this not only does it uh, demonstrate the necessity for diversity in the sciences, you know trilingual bilingual people who are from these communities, these poor communities, uh, science communication uh, directly from the scientist, I think dispels this information that people get from pop- sensationalized popular media. And so, um you know, science communication and 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 uh, scientists adopting this role. I think we we really sort of opened the we really sort of uh, 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 opened the Pandora's box here. Now we're in a new era where I believe that scientists should you know fight to be neutral, I guess. And so, you know, my question is like, what? How can scientists sort of repair repair this relationship? Right? Like, yes, we didn't have leadership from the top from the top, and we still don't. Uh, but you know now it's in our hands you know uh, it's in our hands to sort of dispel the misinformation on our own because we can't really rely on our leaders to do that for us. so so what needs to change? let's say you know what what's like a a, a policy or, or, or some sort of class maybe if, if you were uh, uh, inventing a class at your university, what would that class be about that would help? Uh, the next pandemic uh, that'll next they'll help scientists in the next pandemic uh, communicate the sciences better to to laymen
1: yeah so first i i don't think a policy is gonna change it i do think it's gonna have to be something that is grassroots uh, if if we've learned anything it's that policy is not going to solve the problem of people not listening to scientists because uh you could have any policy in the world but if the leaders don't actually abide by it, then what's the point? Um, I, I will say that, you know, now that we're done, okay, we're done now talking about all the bad things. I'm going to start transitioning to the good things and things that yeah. I'm really excited about for the future of science, science advocacy, science policy, and science communication. Um, you are seeing more and more uh, young scientists. And uh, I guess I'm, I'm only I'm only 34, but I'm talking about people who are actually younger than me. Uh, who you know? Dang, level, dude, yeah, you look yeah. young, man. <laughs> I do look like I'm 17. Um, hey, that's partially because I'm like I'm like five six, and I'm pretty scrawny. So uh, if you if you take a closer look, that you can see my gray hairs, and you can see that I'm actually aging quite horribly, uh, especially during the past six months uh, with the lack of sleep for running this organization and trying to be a postdoc at the same time. Uh, but I, I am really excited I'm really excited about future of science communication uh, because it seems like after a long time of talking about it but not actually doing anything about it, uh, I am seeing universities doing a much better job of recruiting uh, graduate students who you know recruiting people into graduate school uh, that, you know, are similar to my background. Um, people who didn't grow up wealthy, uh, people who are minorities, uh, you know, people who didn't meet a scientist in the, until they were in college uh, and didn't really know what grad school was until it was time to apply for grad school. I feel like we're doing a better job of recruiting people from all walks of life. And that's important because if you don't have uh, a lifetime of growing up in a certain type of community, how can you expect to reach that community once you are a tenured professor and the expert in something?
0: And how can you compete with the people who are from those communities as well? Exactly. You know, yeah.
1: Exactly. So I'm seeing more and more people from different backgrounds uh, getting a voice in science that they're using to communicate with the uh, general audience. So you're seeing this on TikTok, you're seeing this on. Instagram, Twitter, whatever it may be. Not so much Facebook, because Facebook is pretty much dead at this point. Mm. Uh, but you're, you're seeing uh, people who don't look like scientists, such as myself. Like, I don't think if I walked down the street in Columbus, Ohio, people would think, oh, that's a scientist. I'm not saying. I mean, I'm definitely nerdy looking. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, I think when people in Ohio growing up, even myself growing up, when you think of a scientist, you think of an old white guy in a lab coat with a, you know, with the with a gray beard sure. or whatever. Um, and so that's changing. Scientists are starting to look different, and that's a that's a good thing because, uh, you know, how how can you talk to somebody uh, if they're not willing to listen to you because they don't see you as one of them, and So when you're trying to reach communities, for example, like you were describing, the ones you're describing, you know, many different languages, how can you reach them if you don't speak the same language? You know, what if we don't have any scientists who speak Spanish? Like, that's not a good thing. I'm glad we do have a lot of scientists who can speak Spanish and can start to reach those communities. And they're actually seeing science communication as being part of their job. Um, That was something that I, you know, realized five or six years ago that all the top uh young scientists you know who already had labs and were already established in the, establishing themselves in the field they all had something in common they are all phenomenal communicators and of course you had a handful of people who were just brilliant scientists and, and you know couldn't speak very well or couldn't you know collect their thoughts in a presentation very well They're, you're always going to have those people uh, but one unifying thread I was seeing among young scientists was that they could communicate well and so I really made that a something I focused on, about midway through my graduate career. Um, And I realized that, you know, coming from a disadvantaged background was not actually something that was going to hold me back as much as I thought it would, because I actually saw it as um, an extra tool in my in my toolkit, uh, because I now was able to simplify my science and talk to a general audience because I grew up with people, you know my, my, I was the first to go to college in my family. My, my, my dad dropped out of high school to go to the Marine Corps when he was 17. So I know uh, how to speak uh, to people who don't have a background in science because I knew very little about science until I started pursuing it as a career. And so I, I'm really excited about that, that aspect of academia uh, is changing at least at the grad and postdoc level We still have a lot of work to do. At the professor level, uh, but I'm I'm confident that that's that's going to change in the near future as well.
0: Yeah, you know, I, and and <clears throat> I think like there there's certainly a lot of work to do uh, at the faculty level as well, but also a lot of this work uh, will transition into the research itself, the white papers. That's also less racist. Uh, you know, I yes. there, so so there was a colleague of mine who who, who came on the show recently. And, you know, we were talking about a paper. He's, he's a Puerto Rican-American. Uh, uh, and we were talking about a paper that came out. And I'm not going to, like, say the name of the paper and stuff because I want to promote it. But basically, it's such a stupid paper. Like, they, it's a, it's a paper that studies, like, that rationalizes colonizing Puerto Rico as a good thing by using the height of Puerto Ricans as a metric oh
1: for their God. health.
0: You know? And it's like, and it's like, how you? There wasn't a single uh, uh, Puerto Rican author on this paper. I can guarantee that if there was, this paper would have never come out or or yeah. would be different. And you know, I think, um, and, and all all the time you see this where you know scientists link propensity for disease to skin color mm-hmm. or or you know to to socioeconomic status, but in reality, you should be linking it to anxiety, depression. Uh, these sort of downstream effects of racism and socioeconomic yeah. inequality, you know, my my family, like we came, so my family came from uh, India to the West Indies uh, as as slaves, uh, and they grew mm-hmm. up in Guyana and Trinidad, uh, and then they moved to New York in the 1970s, where I was born. Uh, and my mother, uh, so I grew up with a single mother in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Brooklyn, New York. And I didn't touch my first, you know, pipette until I was already, like, a junior undergrad. And, Mm. you know, by the time I got to that point, like, you know, I had just realized that faculty were even doing research. Yeah. And, like, everybody else up in that lab, like, they've been there two, three years, some of those critical undergrad years. And, like, oh, crap. Like, I have to – I got to learn how to use a pipette. I have to learn what these numbers mean on the – what is a P1000 – and, and get, and, 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 and apply to grad school. I have two, three years to catch up on. And I, my entire life, you know, I had never interacted with, with the scientists. I, I always had like, you know, shady doctors who, because my family never had insurance or were always moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, my mom couldn't really afford proper healthcare or, or, or that type of mentorship. And, you know, school of course are supposed to be engines for economic mobility, but public school you know we we didn't have the great laboratories or graduate level science teachers or or anybody like that so you know opening this opening this lab in brooklyn was was great for me because it it was it was given back to to my community yeah. i remember where this lab was i remember that building not even being there as a kid mm-hmm. uh, and you know it's really and that's really like one of the goals of this podcast as well is to talk to these young up and coming leaders you know, uh, black and brown minority scientists as well, you know, about what needs to change and what needs to happen next. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I agree on this front, you know, with you
1: 100%. Yeah, I was just gonna, uh, I guess I give a little shout out to some of these organizations that um, are doing a very good job of trying to correct this problem. And so I don't think I would be here right now if it wasn't for, a program called LSERP at the University of Minnesota uh, that um, took me in as a summer intern uh, after my sophomore year, and I uh, it just work, so basically it was a ten-week course. Or the first three weeks you're learning the basics of neuroscience, you're doing some lab techniques, and you spend seven weeks in a lab. And for me, I was just excited that I got in because you know they gave you a small stipend and you got to to live in you know a different city for a summer. Which was nice because prior to that, I was spending my summers working in a factory where uh-huh. uh, our, my job was to sandblast oxygen tanks and carbon dioxide tanks. I had to sandblast oh. them and, and then repaint them because the paint on those tanks that you see uh, in your lab or at, you know, at, at hospitals, the color of the paint actually tells people what gas is inside. And what concentration of gas is inside. So I learned a lot about how those things work, but I was getting pretty tired of working, you know, for minimum wa- minimum wage uh, in a factory over the summers. Uh, and so they launched this program that was specifically, well, I don't want to say specifically, but it was catered towards minority scientists. And that was a, a relatively broad definition because, uh, you know, they wanted to do a good job of recruiting women as well. So there are Uh, Plenty of women in the organization or in the summer program that were not of color uh, because, again, that's also a problem. If you look at the faculty level, uh, uh, there's still a disproportionate uh, lack of uh, female professors across most institutions. Uh, So there's a lot of work to be done, but it is starting to, uh, you know, these groups that started 10, 15, 20 years ago to try to address this address this problem, and kudos to the NIH and NSF for funding these things. You're starting to see uh, the benefits of those of those programs because uh, I'm now on the job market for tenure track positions, and I am participating in uh, a series of other uh, workshops that are catered towards minority postdocs on the job market. And I think the most exciting part about uh, being a part of those organizations. Uh, is the fact that I'm seeing 15 to 20 neuroscientists of color who run the job market. Like, that's a good thing. That means, you know, those early programs are actually working, uh, and they're actually addressing this problem uh, by helping uh, people get into science. And then there's other workshops and other programs from other universities that are helping to maintain um, uh, those scientists along the pipeline. Uh, and I've benefited from those throughout my entire career. So I did this thing called Brains at University of Washington at the beginning of my postdoc. Uh, I'm doing these workshops over the past year or so, catered towards minority scientists at MIT uh, and Cornell and uh, Sloan Kettering and the University of Michigan. Uh, and so it's it's this is no longer something that only one or two schools care about anymore. It's very clear that. Um, addressing this issue has become systemic, which is good because academia historically has been systemically racist. And it's not necessarily that there are people who are racists in the system. You do not have to have vociferous racists in your system for it to be a, a racist system. Uh, and I think that's what people are starting to realize that they could be as open minded and uh, tolerant and accepting people, the most, you know, the most tolerant, accepting people on the planet, Uh, but if you still keep hiring the same people to become PIs in your institution, then you are part of the problem and you might not even realize it. But I feel like, honestly, this summer is when that started to change at that level.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with you top and bottom. And, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, the last data I checked, I think... Uh, the last that I checked was uh, from the National Science Foundation. I think they're doing. They had like some survey data from 2017, where 68 percent of, of PhD holders in the United States were were white, and the rest was broken down into the rest of you know the, the other categories. So there's, there's certainly a lot of work to be done, and 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 LSERP and other sort of organizations that are engines for you know socio- socioeconomic mobility are are really necessary. You know, I I myself had the McNair Scholars. And they were the ones that really um, allowed me to stay on campus for a summer uh, mm-hmm. instead of going back home. You know, if I had gone back home, I would have had to work some some whatever job to support my mom and my family. But instead, I got to use that summer to learn to learn how to use a pipette. Yeah, um, and you know, and and other sort of programs in public school as well that need this funding. After school programs keep kids off the streets and you know keep them keep them in school. So the and oftentimes really really impoverished households can't afford a babysitter and keep them in after school keeps keeps the kids away from home so the parents can keep working and you know there there's a lot of like really everyday heroes i think uh in 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 our in our educational system that that don't get the credit they deserve yeah. but they're they there. don't get
1: any credit and i don't yeah. know why but no one knows what LSERP is and i do not know why that's the case yeah. uh very few people know about brains i do not know why that's the case these these people are these organizations are they are the ones who are doing something rather than tweeting out you know performative gestures they're actually doing stuff to address the problem and i think um scientists everywhere can 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 learn from these people who are you know devoting their uh, their careers and their time to
0: to helping and that's what matters right like less talk more action yeah I'm, I'm so sick
1: of i'm so sick of like pi's that i know i'm
0: not going to name them obviously uh, and
1: I, I don't, they're not at my institution, uh, PIs that I know that are saying all these things on Twitter as if they're the heroes. And I know for a fact, they haven't done anything. Yeah. I actually know for a fact that some of them have, have directly contributed to the problem, but they love those internet points. And I'm, I'm frankly getting sick of that. I, I, I want people who are committed to action, not people who just like to talk.
0: Amen to that. And, uh, how do people get involved with the, COVID 19 National Scientist Volunteer Database.
1: Team National Scientist Volunteer Database, of course. Uh, You can get involved. Uh, You can um, request volunteers. You can request access. Uh, You can do all this stuff at COVID19Sci.org. It's COVID19Sci.org. Um, you know, if you don't see anything on the website that interests you, but you still want to get involved in some way, you, you can also email us and all of our contact information is on the website as well. You can say, Hey, I'm interested in getting involved. What can I do?
0: And how do people get in touch with you on Twitter?
1: It's at MFwells5. If anybody cares to follow me, I'm not super active, but, um, when I do tweet, I hope it's interesting. <laughs> uh,
0: anything else that, uh, you want to mention?
1: Uh, what else? Uh, I, as I mentioned, I'm on the job market, so if you're a, a chair of a of a neuroscience or stem cell biology uh, faculty search, whichever ones are actually taking place this year, because it's going to be kind of chaos out there with the the lack of um, job openings this year. Yeah, I mean, get at me if you want. I have I have a K99, like was mentioned, so I'm bringing money.
0: Well, th- thanks a lot for your time, Michael. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, in the future if you have any cooler, hot projects that you, you want to work on uh you hit me up uh, i'm down to work together again sometime sure
1: sounds good thanks for having me
0: all right dude we'll we'll talk soon yeah talk to you soon thank you for listening to this episode of deep thoughts science and social justice is a podcast so we like to ask the hard questions about racism discrimination and hardship for minorities and other marginalized communities in this country if you want to keep up with all the updates follow deep thoughts podcast on instagram that's deep underscore thoughts underscore podcast on instagram dm us there if you have any feedback or if you want to be on a future episode we would love to hear from you give us a review on whatever platform we're listening on if it's apple Podcasts or, or spotify or whatever other platform and leave us a review We want we want your feedback stay tuned we have a whole list of guests from public servants to scientists and other everyday heroes coming up so be sure to stick around for the next episode